we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. Yeah, the less we eat, the less violence is being done and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. Welcome to Animal Voices, Western Canada's only radio program dedicated to animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM CFRO Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, BC, Canada on unceded Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh territories. Today is Friday, January 15th, 2021. Happy New Year. I'm your host, Elise Jacobson. Thank you for joining me on this beautiful day. Next Wednesday, January 20th, is Penguin Awareness Day. Our featured guest on today's show is Diane DiNapoli, a penguin expert, speaker, and award-winning author known as the Penguin Lady. Diane is perhaps the perfect guest for Penguin Awareness Day, as she has spent many years traveling the globe raising awareness about penguins, including the threats facing their species and how everyday people can help. We'll learn fun facts about these wonderful birds, as well as what we can do to save them and preserve their natural habitats. That's coming up later on in the hour, so stay tuned. So I'm here with my guest co-host, Amir Ali. Thanks so much for joining me today, Amir. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you, as always. Um, so the first thing that we wanted to chat a little bit about is um, we're going to chat about some news later on, but this is kind of more of an event that's coming up. The Animal Law Organization, Animal Justice, has launched a special course that will be beginning January 25th that they call the Animal Justice Academy. Um, according to their website, Animal Justice Academy is a free six-week online advocacy boot camp to empower you to make a better world for animals. Um, again, it's starting January 25th. It's completely free. On their website, it says, if the images of animals suffering in puppy mills, factory farms, zoos, laboratories, and fur farms leave you feeling sad and helpless, it's important for you to know the power you can have as an individual to help them. Animal Justice Academy will teach you how to become an informed, vibrant, and effective champion for animals through political engagement, media, public protest and outreach, veganism, creative mediums, business, and your own unique communities and social circles. This one-of-a-kind online training event will feature over 50 video modules with an audio option, a dozen live panels, the online academy forum, Q&A sessions, and bite-sized action challenges. Starting exactly where you are, you'll learn tons of different ways to advocate for animals, from meeting with your political representative, to getting vegan food offerings at local restaurants and grocery stores, to creating captivating social media content, to learning how to have effective conversations about animal issues with your family and friends. And they go on to say that this is for everyone, starting from people who are completely new to animal advocacy to veteran activists. Um, and again, it starts January 25th. It's a six-week course. To learn more about the course and to register, go to animaljusticeacademy.com. I didn't even realize it was it was free because now I'm personally interested in this. I think when I first went vegan, this would have been awesome. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. I think it's amazing that they're offering it for free. There are apparently 80 um, people involved in teaching it. It's quite a 
quite a big thing. So um, I am definitely interested in registering as well. I think it's going to be super valuable for everyone. And because it's online, um, you can right. access it from anywhere in the world. So that's great. Um, again, that starts January 25th. And to register and get more information, you can go to animaljusticeacademy.com. So let's move on to the news. Um, there's one story yeah. that's been really buzzing this week. Uh, yeah. Not a happy story. Um, the United States Fish and Wildlife Services launched an investigation to identify all parties involved in the harassment of a manatee found with the word Trump scraped onto the algae <sighs> on the animal's back. Um yeah, this article says local media outlet Citrus County Chronicle first reported that the manatee was spotted on Sunday swimming in the Blue Hole headwaters of the Homosassa River in North Florida. The USFWS currently classifies manatees as a threatened species. The animals are protected under the Marine Mammal Protection Act and Endangered Species Act. Um, and harassing them can result in a fine of up to $50,000 and one year imprisonment. So they are currently seeking the individual or individuals who were responsible for this. Um, yeah, pretty shocking. Yeah, I was I was doing some reading on on manatees and they're they're pretty incredible creatures. And I think when most people think about manatees, they probably know as little as I did before the story came about. Apparently, they they uh, share more qualities to elephants than they do to their closest related like sea uh, animals. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And also that almost half of the manatee deaths that are in the West Indies are, are caused by humans and mostly because of boat collisions and that kind of thing. Uh, they're not very fast, so they can't escape from the boats. But yeah, we've really messed up uh, their population and their habitat. And as you mentioned, did you say they were endangered or close to being endangered? They, I think, were previously classified as endangered and they've been, in 2017, they were uh, downgraded to threatened. But it's still like they're... Um definitely not a species to mess with and again you can incur a huge fine and imprisonment for harassing them uh, yeah i find i'm sort of like speechless reading this because i can't imagine how somebody could do this to a creature like that not only a threatened species but manatees also are known you know you said they're like elephants they're they're known for being very gentle um yeah i feel like the story leaves a lot of unanswered questions you know it says that the the word Trump was scraped onto the algae on the animal's back. I don't know whether, you know, their skin was actually injured or what, but it occurred to me that you would have to trap or restrain an animal like that in order to be able to write something on them. So Yeah, actually, on that note, um, I read a, a quote from Patrick Rose, who's actually the executive director of the Save the Manatee Club, and he said, most concerning is that any manatee that would tolerate so much human contact could have been sick. The animal also could have been young and seeking a diver's attention, although that would be rare. Um, but yeah, when if you ever come across a manatee, you should call your state wildlife or obviously the Wildlife Foundation near you. Um, but yeah, just the fact that somebody could think of doing this is just in, incredulous to me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's really horrible. Um, I kind of feel like too, uh, you know, I, I think that the fact that somebody wrote Trump on it uh, to me is not a coincidence or irrelevant. I kind of feel like there's just sort of a general in in that kind of um, ideology, the sort of cult of Trumpism, as they say, there's sort of a general 
disregard for life, disrespect for others, you know, whether that's other humans or other animals. And uh, I, I feel like that's all sort of connected. Um, but it is shocking, you know, just some of the things that we're seeing in the current political climate. And this is kind of just the tip of the iceberg. Do you have any other thoughts on that? I just hope you don't see any copycats doing this kind of thing and hope it more so just raises awareness that we shouldn't be treating animals like this. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, this article mentions that the USFWS is urging the public to call the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Hotline at 888-404-3922 with any information about the individual or individuals involved in the harassment of this manatee. Um, the Center for Biological Diversity is actually offering a $5,000 reward for information leading to the conviction of the persons responsible for this crime. So there are a lot of people on it. Hopefully somebody is found and brought to justice. And I agree. Yeah, I hope we don't see um, people copycatting this awful thing. Yeah, no. In lighter news, we have some news out of the UK. The plant-based subscription service Vibrant Vegan is on the lookout for the UK's biggest meat eater to <laughs> offer <laughs> right to offer 50,000 British pounds in exchange for going vegan. 50,000 pounds is about 86,000 Canadian dollars. God. Yeah, it's a lot of money. The chosen meat eater will sign a contract stating they will not consume any animal products for three months while also encouraging others to give a vegan diet a go on social media. Named Vegan Curious Coordinator, their 50,000 pound role will involve eating Vibrant Vegan's meals and sharing what they think and speaking to other meat eaters about making the switch. At the end of the three-month period, they will be asked if they want to stay vegan for the rest of 2021. If they do, Vibrant Vegan will supply them with 100,000 pounds worth of vegan meals to wow. last them, yeah, to last them a quote-unquote lifetime, providing they prove their pledge with social media posts and a food diary. So, yeah, what what do you think about this, Amir? I've gotten mixed feelings on it on a number of fronts. For one, like how are they going? I know they, they were expected to sign a contract or something saying that they would not eat meat for that period of time, I, I believe. Is that correct? You know? Yeah, any animal products, right? Right. Under contract. Okay. And then, yeah, so, I mean, unless there's going to be somebody doing surveillance on them, how will they be able to know that this person's actually following those guidelines, especially considering that they're, what, UK's biggest meat eater? And that's yeah. where my, my second point of conflict comes in. I feel like we're almost rewarding this person for the fact that they eat so much meat. I get I get that there's a sort of a, a silver lining that they are hopefully going to convert from being, you know, the UK's biggest meat eater to maybe the UK's biggest vegan advocate, but still kind of iffy. Yeah, I, I had similar feelings, actually. I think you're right. There's It's hard to really prove that somebody is sticking to it. I mean, I guess they do expect them to sort of regularly post on social media and keep a food diary and stuff like that. And hopefully whoever wins this position will honor that. Um, I also feel like that seems like so much money. <sighs> I mean... <laughs> Like eating vegan food really doesn't cost that much. You know? No. What are you going to do with all that money? But um, <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's, you know, obviously it is a publicity stunt, you know, because if they're spending all this money on one person, it's just to kind of uh, create buzz and, you know, get more people interested in eating plant-based. My thought is that they're probably targeting someone who's a heavy meat eater to show that, okay, if this person can do it, then anybody can do it and they can share their journey in a way that's relatable to a lot of people, which is cool. 
but yeah well, what if it backfires and they you know they finish the three months and they're like oh man that three months was the worst three months of my life i'm so happy to have a burger again kind of thing you know? <laughs> right like, right I, I mean i guess it sounds like um vibrant vegan is uh it's a plant-based subscription service is what this says so i think it's it's like a meal subscription service a mm -hmm. meal delivery service so it sounds to me like they're actually going to be provided nice meals and stuff they won't necessarily need to cook all of their own food so that probably does make a difference you know they're going to be um fed all these really nice meals and stuff so i think it sounds like the service is fairly confident that they'll stick with it if they're gonna spend that much money. On but it. hey, if these guys are listening, even for for five thousand pounds, I will tweet about veganism every day, right? Every yeah. hour of every day. Just show me the money. I'm down. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Salmon upstream from the sea Or an orca swimming out in the pool You'd want to listen to co-op radio Because we'd be listening to you If you want to know where your music has come from Or where your politicians have been Co-op radio has got that information Without the media mogul spin We're not tied to big corporations So we can dig deep into truth Community voices you won't hear Except in our radio booths If you want to own a radio station Be part of 40 years cooperation Be part of 100.5 Keep co-op radio alive Once again, Penguin Awareness Day is coming up next week on January 20th. Before we get to our feature interview with penguin expert Diane DiNapoli, let's listen to some fascinating facts about penguins. The only list of penguins you will ever need. Penguins are the type of animals that instantly put you in a good mood when you see them waddling along or watch them swallowing fish like it's their last meal. There are 17 species of penguin. And today, we're going to meet some of these remarkable animals and learn more about what makes them tick. The White Flippered Penguin We're not going to worry about the scientific names because personally I don't want to embarrass myself with the pronunciations. This penguin is very cute. Reaching only 12 inches or 30 centimeters, they weigh a mere 3.3 pounds. They earned their name from the white markings on their flippers and currently there are only 3,700 breeding pairs. They're found exclusively on the Banks Peninsula in New Zealand and feast on small shoaling fish like pilchards and anchovies. Drink up. Penguins tend to swallow a lot of water, which makes sense considering they spend half of their lives in the ocean. And thanks to a special gland behind their eyes, called the supraorbital gland, they are able to filter out salt water from their bloodstream. They then excrete it through their beaks or expel it with a great big sneeze. Chatham Island Little Penguin This is another very small, special kind of penguin, reaching heights between 13 and 17 inches. It can vary slightly depending on the subspecies. They're native to the shorelines of southern Australia and New Zealand, and some have been spotted in Chile. They're also known as fairy penguins due to their size and weigh in the region of just 2 pounds. They have other names too, including the Maori name of Corora and Little Blues due to their indigo blue and gray feathers. Besides their diet of small fish, they also eat crab larvae, seahorses, and crustaceans. We'll look at some more varieties of this particular penguin a little later on. 
It's catastrophic, but not in the way we're familiar with. Unlike most birds, penguins don't just lose a few feathers at a time, they lose everything at once. For about two or three weeks, they are land-bound while they undergo the catastrophic molt. The old feathers don't fall out until all the new feathers are present, making for rather awkward-looking penguins. Cook Straight Little Penguin this little chap is a type of little penguin and inhabits the southern end of the northern island of New Zealand. Penguins are so important that there is a World Penguin Day on the 25th of April. Hide and Seek Champion Penguins' coloring is very clever because from the top, their black bodies blend into the ocean waters, making them very difficult to see. From the bottom, their white stomachs are hidden against the bright surface reflecting into the water. African penguin. These cute critters are the only species of penguin native to Africa, and you'll find them in South Africa and Namibia. There are many rehabilitation centers where on certain days of the year, the public can go watch the penguins being released back into the ocean. They use their call to identify each other, ask for food, and find a mate. Bartholomew Diaz was the first European to spot an African penguin. The penguins unfortunately became food for him and his crew though. Fortunately, that is no longer the case. There are 21,000 breeding pairs of African penguins penguins remaining. Leave it to the guys. Some species of penguins do things the other way around. The male penguin will sit and incubate the eggs while the females leave for weeks at a time to go and hunt. Females find pudgier penguins much more attractive because they know that they have enough fat storage to last a few weeks without eating. Northern Rockhopper Penguin these penguins are native to Tristan da Cunha and Go Island, and despite these little islands being uninhabited, they have little fear of humans. These penguins are endangered, and their population has declined by 90% over the past 70 years. They eat krill, crustaceans, squid, fish, and octopus. All the better to hear you with. You would be surprised to hear that even though you can't see visible ears on a penguin, their hearing is excellent, and they can easily pick up their mate's distinct call in crowded breeding grounds. Who saw them first? Antonio Pigafetta gave the first published account of a penguin spotting in 1520 when he was aboard Ferdinand Magellan's circumnavigation of the globe. He saw them in Argentina and described them as strange geese. King penguin. Probably one of the most recognizable penguins is the king penguin, and they are found in frozen and cold places and are especially prevalent in the Falkland Islands. They are exquisitely beautiful when they're adults, but we can't say the same for their fuzzy brown unattractive babies. They're the second largest of the penguin species and have a diet consisting of mainly lanternfish, squid, and krill. King penguins will dive as deep as 300 feet to catch prey, and some have recorded depths of up to 1,000 feet. Fossils of the earliest relative of the king penguin have been found dating back 60 million years. Yellow-eyed penguin. No surprises how this penguin got his name, and they are native to New Zealand's South Island. They are called Hoyo, which is Maori for noise shouter, and yes, they are really noisy penguins. There are less than 3,400 remaining, and their conservation status is threatened, nationally endangered. Their biggest threats include dogs, humans, predation, disease, and habitat loss. Snug and warm. Most sea mammals have blubber, which helps to keep them warm, but not penguins. Penguins do things differently. Their feathers trap a layer of warm air next to the skin, which insulates the penguin, which then heats up even more when they start to generate muscular heat during swimming. 
Adelie Penguin. When it comes to cuteness, these guys are top of the list. They are adorable, and it may surprise you to know that they are some of the fiercest hunters. Sadly, due to climate change, their food source is at a minimum. They got their pretty name from the French Antarctic explorer Jules Dumont d'Urville, who came upon these penguins in 1840. He named them after his wife, Adele. They're also known as brush-tailed penguins, and they're dynamite in small packages, having been known to take down much larger predators like seals and massive seabirds. Gas is not an issue. I'm sure it's not something you've given any thought to, I know I hadn't, but penguins do not expel gas. Humans release 1,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere daily thanks to, um, you know, expelling gas, but penguins, nothing. In fact, if you have a penguin that's farting, better get him checked out. Penguins don't eat high-fiber diets, so their guts are filled with a completely different bacteria that does not produce gas. Chinstrap Penguin These penguins are native to the shores of Antarctica and several Pacific and Southern Ocean Islands. No guesses as to why they're called chinstrap penguins, because they do look like they're wearing little army helmets. Nice to know that there are so many of them and they're not on the endangered list with around 13 million individuals waddling around. They leave their breeding colonies come winter and migrate north until the following spring. They are roughly 28 inches tall and weigh between 9 and 14 pounds. They eat fish, crabs, shrimp, and krill as their beaks are very strong. These penguins are excellent swimmers and can reach speeds of 20 miles an hour. A smelly issue. Can you imagine how much waste tens of thousands of penguins all conglomerating together on one little island can produce? Tons of the stuff, and the stench must be overwhelming. For example, the Adelie penguins have been going to the same island to nest for hundreds of years and leaving their excrement there ever since. Humans have been harvesting a lot of that for ages, way before chemical fertilizers were invented. It's part of the reason why the numbers of African penguins have dwindled so rapidly. Magellanic Penguin At first glance, you'd think you were looking at an African penguin, but look closely and you'll notice that these guys have a dark black stripe around their neck, differentiating them from their African cousins. These penguins are prevalent on the southern coasts of South America, but you sometimes find them on the coast of Brazil. These guys have a distinct difference from African penguins, and that is the fact that they hunt jellyfish. These warm-weather penguins got their name from Ferdinand Magellan, who first spotted them in 1519 on his trip to the tip of South America take flight. We know that penguins are flightless birds, but don't feel too sorry for them. While they can't take flight like ordinary birds, many species of penguins can still take to the air. Just before they leap from the water onto the ice, they release air bubbles from their feathers, removing the drags from their bodies and allowing them to launch themselves into the air and land on the ice safely. Macaroni Penguin It's hard not to fall in love with these penguins right away with their crazy yellow lashes that would make any girl jealous. There are in the region of 24 million macaroni penguins living in 260 colonies between South America, Australia, Antarctica, and Marion Island. Despite their numbers being plentiful, they are vulnerable. Their biggest threat currently is human settlement, and huge conservation efforts are currently in place to protect them chew on this. Penguins don't have teeth, but they do have backward-facing fleshy spines that line their mouths, helping to push their dinner down their throats. Southern Rockhopper Penguin They look quite similar to the northern rockhopper that we mentioned earlier, but they have a subtle difference. They don't have the usual patch of pale skin just underneath their beaks. There are roughly a million pairs of breeding rockhoppers, and of all the penguins, this species was not first in the birdsong department. They're the least musical penguin and have a song that can make the most chill person get a little twitchy. 
Emperor Penguin. Certainly one of the most recognizable penguins is the Emperor Penguin. They're featured in so many excellent animated films, including March of the Penguins, Madagascar, Happy Feet, and Surf's Up. They are the largest and tallest of all penguins and reside in Antarctica. There are around 600,000 adult males in Antarctica currently, and there are 54 emperor colonies in the Antarctic. Some emperor penguins have been known to live for 50 years. Feeling blue. Otago Peninsula is seeing a lot of blue, and that's because they've enjoyed a fabulous breeding season of little blue penguins. These tiny penguins have been quite the tourist attraction, with tourists coming every night to watch them scurrying up the cliff after their day out in the ocean. They've seen more than 130 chicks hatching this season, making them the most productive seabird on the planet, according to scientist Hiltrun Rats. Long may it continue. 1. Speed Demon And finally, did you know that the fastest penguin in the world is the Gen 2? These speedy chaps can reach speeds of up to 22 miles an hour. We're not owned by the Emperor, so we can say the Emperor has no clothes. <laughs> Vancouver Cooperative Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. As mentioned earlier in the program, Penguin Awareness Day is coming up next week on January 20th. My guest today is Diane DiNapoli, a penguin expert, TED and National Geographic speaker and educator. She is also the award-winning author of The Great Penguin Rescue. Hello, Diane, and welcome to Animal Voices. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So you are known as the Penguin Lady, and you have spent many years traveling the world rescuing penguins, speaking to media and at conferences, and educating people of all ages on penguins and why they need our help. So what was it about penguins that initially sparked this passion for you, and what has driven you to advocate for these birds specifically all these years? Well, I have always had a very deep love of animals. And I also grew up near the ocean. So in particular, aquatic animals, um, I always felt an affinity for. And my first love actually was dolphins. And I went back to college for a second degree in my 30s. So I could hopefully get an internship working with dolphins. Um, and I did get that internship and it was amazing. But then I had an internship left to do still for my degree. And I did that internship at the New England Aquarium in Boston, and that is where I was first introduced to penguins. And they just sort of captivated me. And so when I graduated, I decided to pursue a job there. Uh, but then three years after I began working with the penguins there, there was an oil spill in South Africa, and 20,000 penguins were covered with oil in that oil spill and they put out the the local rescue center there put out a call for help for penguin experts from around the world who had experience working with these animals and could advise them how to rescue them and take care of them and how to train volunteers to help and so i was there for three weeks of that rescue and that sort of you know i'd, I'd always loved animals i had been captivated by the penguins I love teaching people about them, but that experience in, in Cape Town, seeing the impact, you know, of, of human disturbance, of oiling on these penguins, seeing that firsthand, I think sort of galvanized me when I left the aquarium to kind of go out on my own and, and educate as many people as I could about them and about all the issues that they face out in the wild. Um, and, 
And so that became my mission was to raise awareness and funding to protect threatened and endangered penguins. Amazing. So what are some of the most common myths about penguins that you encounter in your work? And what do you wish more people knew about them? Oh, let me see. I think one of the, the the myths are the biggest, I think, is that they all live in very cold, icy, snowy places like Antarctica. And I think that's because the most iconic penguin species is is the emperor penguin, which does live there. And it's a beautiful species. And, you know, March of the Penguins is a documentary that so many people are familiar with. But in reality, only four of the 19 species live regularly in Antarctica. Most species actually live in much warmer climates. Um, and so that's one of the, I think, number one misnomers, misconceptions about them. Um, you know, so they don't live at the North Pole. They're all in the Southern Hemisphere and they do have knees. Those are probably, oh. the, three, <laughs> probably the three most common uh, questions or mistakes that are made about penguins. Right. Uh, and I think what I wish people did know is is that 13 of the 19 species are actually uh, at some risk of extin- extinction. They're either listed as um, vulnerable, near threatened, or endangered, um, and their populations are crashing precipitously. So over the last 100 years or so, we've seen most penguin species, we've seen their populations crash by 50 to 99%. So that's really dramatic. It's really rapid. Um, and so we really need to to pay attention to their environment and try and protect them. Wow, yes, that is staggering. Um, so I'm curious, do you have a favorite species of penguin? So until a year ago, oh no, I guess that's two years ago now. Um, 2020 is a blur. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Until two years ago, I would have said the little blue penguin, which is the smallest penguin in the world. They're found in Australia and New Zealand, and they are called little blue because they are tiny. They only weigh two to three pounds and stand about eight inches high, and they literally are blue on their backs. And they're just, you know, number one, they're adorable. But number two, what I always found fascinating about them was that they have the widest range of vocalizations of any of the penguin species. And so they have this fascinating, you know, diversity of sounds that they make that all mean different things. But then two years ago, I went for the first time to South Georgia Island, in the, in, which is sort of near Antarctica. And this was as a guest lecturer for Lindblad Expeditions and National Geographic. And it was my second trip with them, but my, my first time to South Georgia Island. Uh, and everybody, you know, my colleagues in this field had all said, you know, um, Antarctica is great. But wait till you get to South Georgia. And I really couldn't imagine any place being cooler than Antarctica. But boy, South Georgia was breathtaking. And what really captivated me were the king penguins. And so the king penguins are basically the smaller cousin of the emperor penguin. So picture this tall penguin that's about three feet tall. Uh, weighs about 40 pounds, 45 pounds, and it has these beautiful orange feathers on its cheeks and orange and feather, uh, yellow feathers on its neck. And they're just stunningly beautiful. But what really sort of captured me was that they were so curious about us. So if you just stood in one spot or you sat down, they would just waddle over and, you know, check you out. I had them nibbling on my camera lens, on my fingers, on my boots, um, and so king penguins now are have, they've they've replaced the little blue. They've taken their spot, I think, as my favorite species. 
Wow, that's so cool. Um, so do you have any favorite facts about penguins, about king penguins specifically? Oh, uh, well, actually, I learned something. A lot of us learned something new on that trip. There was a, a young biologist, and she was specifically studying king penguin vocalizations. And she had discovered something brand new about the species that really had not been known before, is that the male and the female, you could actually distinguish which was which by listening to the pattern of their call. Um, and so there was a very subtle difference in sort of the staccato call that they have and in the pattern to it. Um, and so she, you know, listened to hours and hours and hours of, of, of recordings and figured this out. Um, so that was a new, really interesting fact about king penguins that I didn't know and that pretty much nobody else on the ship knew at that point. That's amazing. So um, you touched earlier on your experience rescuing oiled penguins or penguins that have been victims of an oil spill in South Africa. And you wrote a book on this. Your book, The Great Penguin Rescue, received critical acclaim, including the Silver Nautilus Book Award. It was a finalist for the 2010 Massachusetts Book Award and was named one of the best natural history books of the year by Library Journal. So tell us about this book. Oh, boy. <laughs> the book uh, is a labor of love. It's essentially my love story to the penguins that were oiled in that oil spill and to the extraordinary volunteers who showed up to help us. So um, as I had said, this was in the summer of 2000. This ship named the Treasure sank off the coast of Cape Town and 20,000 African penguins were covered with oil. Um, a week later, another 20,000 penguins were removed from their breeding island because the oil spill was about to hit that island. And at this point, these rescue centers, a temporary rescue center had been set up in addition to the primary rescue center that has been in Cape Town for 40 years, which is called Sandcob. Um, and so they knew if the oil hits this island, we don't have room for another 20,000 oiled penguins. So they basically removed them from their breeding island and shipped them 500 miles up the coast in trucks and released them into the clean waters and let them swim back. So I was tasked essentially with, I was part of the first team of penguin experts to fly to Cape Town from the U.S. to help uh, advise them on, on husbandry practices for taking care of these birds and training the volunteers and over the course of this rescue, 12,500 completely inexperienced volunteers showed up to help us save these penguins. And, and I should point out that there were only about 110 experts like myself from around the world that were able to come throughout the whole three-month rescue. So we came in staggered shifts. So we could not have done this on our own. It would have been impossible you know, for 110 people, even if we were all there together at the same time, to rescue, rehabilitate and release 20,000 oiled penguins. So so really, those volunteers, they, in my mind, are the absolute heroes of this rescue story. Um, and and those penguins, you know, are alive because they came and helped us. That's amazing. What a beautiful story. Um, so you have a new book, actually, that was just published last month called All About Penguins. Tell me about that one. So that is um, a children's book. It's my first, you know, it's also nonfiction and it's for four to eight year olds. 
And this was actually a right for hire project. So uh, just I think it was in April um, of this last year, I was contacted by a publisher who said, you know, we have this concept for a book. Um, and we're reaching out to find an expert who would be interested in writing it. And so um, that project was put together during the rest of 2020. And the book just came out in December. And uh, I'm really happy with it. This is sort of, you know, if, if I could tell young children, kind of cram all the facts about penguins that are essential to know into one short book. Uh, this would be that book. And it's beautifully, beautifully illustrated by an artist from the UK named Ray Shule. Um, and, you know, just magical illustrations. So, um, so, and that it's, it's on Amazon um, and Barnes and Noble. And I know people are, have been able to get it through their local bookstores as well. Oh, that's great. So cool. So um, tell us, what are some of the primary threats that penguins face today? Mm. So they have a lot of different issues they have to contend with out there in the wild. But the, the primary threats, uh, the number one threat to penguins today is global warming. And the number two is overfishing. Mm. And they're both essential, essentially having the same effect, which is leading to starvation for the most part. Global warming is causing a lot of different issues, but one of the issues is that it's the the warming of the ocean currents is it's shifting where those cold ocean currents are that have their food in it. So penguins eat fish and squid and krill, depending on where they live. Um, and when those cold water currents that their food is in gets pushed further away from their breeding and foraging grounds, it makes it much harder for them to get enough food to survive um, and to feed their chicks as well. Uh, and then with overfishing, um, I would imagine you know, a lot of people now know a lot about overfishing, but their, some of their primary foods, for example, with the African penguin are pilchards, which is another word for sardines, uh, and anchovies. And those are both threatened populations of fish because they're overfished near where these penguins live. Um, and so they're competing with these huge commercial fisheries for food and they just can't compete. And so those are two of the primary issues. The, the, the positive thing, if there is one, is that those are actually two things that each one of us individual as individuals has the power to do something about. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, it's there are ways that we can change our behaviors and our habits that are going to have an impact on those two things. Absolutely. Uh, we've talked about this quite a bit on our show in the past, actually, both overfishing and various issues around climate change. Um, if any listeners are interested in finding out about that, you can visit our website at animalvoices.org. Obviously, you know, non-human animals of all species are very often the first to be negatively affected by these issues, um, which kind of brings me to my next question. You've described penguins as a sort of canary in the coal mine in terms of ocean health and of the overall health of our planet by extension. Can you elaborate on this? Sure. So penguins are what is called an indicator species. And so an indicator species essentially is a species whose status provides information about the health of the ecosystem that they live in and the other animals that are they share that ecosystem with. So the 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 sort of example I just gave with the African penguin, uh, you know, they a lot of them are starving. Their population is crashing. They're not getting enough food to eat. Um, and, you know, they're near the top of the food chain. 
But, you know, why are they starving? Well, if we look further down that food chain, it's because those anchovies and pilchards are being overfished. So the health of their ecosystem is not great. And so it's impacting their ability to, sur to survive. And so that's when we look at, you know, we can see their numbers dropping. And typically that is because there's some issue going on in their ecosystem that's impacting them negatively. Yes, absolutely. And this, of course, uh, translates to the overall health of the planet, right? I always think about um, Captain Paul Watson of Sea Shepherd has a saying, he always says, if the oceans die, we die, mm -hmm. um, which is sort of dark, I suppose, but it is it indicates how dire this whole situation is. Exactly. Yeah, he and Sylvia Earle both are often quoted saying that. And yeah. It's all connected, right? We, you know, I, I talk about penguins and I'm passionate about penguins, but I'm really passionate about the planet and I'm passionate about, you know, nature and all animals. And they are this iconic species and I love them and I'm passionate about them. But, you know, it, it's all connected. We're all connected. And, and humans are part of that, you know, global network as well. So if if we destroy, you know, the planet, we're essentially ultimately destroying ourselves. Yes, absolutely. So what are some of the most effective ways in which everyday people like us and our listeners uh, can help endangered and threatened penguins? Uh, so in terms of those number, you know, those top two issues that I mentioned, um, global warming and overfishing. So for overfishing, you know, uh, you can choose not to eat fish at all. And then in terms of global warming, you know, just the simple things of of in your own little homes and backyards of turning down your heat or buying a hybrid car. You know, I've I'm on my second Prius now taking transportation. Uh, you know, there's little, little things that we can do. And it might seem like a drop in this huge ocean. But if we all do it, it, it does make a difference. Um, and and to vote, you know, to to vote for the candidates that are going to be supporting the environment and and these issues that we're talking about. Um, I think I have come to finally realize, you know, it took me a while. Uh, I used to just vote in the presidential elections, you know, when I was younger. And now I realize, boy, I got to start doing that on the local level, because these are the people that typically are going to be climbing that political ladder. So. Um, you know, to support those candidates, even on a local level that are going to be supportive of these issues. Um, and also, you know, to to vote with your dollars. Um, I I know that I, I try not to use Amazon anymore, but if I do, I will pay more to for a vendor that is closer instead of a vendor that's across the country, because that's going to be less carbon output for shipping purposes. Um, and then you can go, there's carbon footprint calculators. And so you can go onto one of these websites and figure out how, what am I responsible for? How much carbon am I putting out into the environment every, every day, every year? And those websites typically have a lot of tips and advice for how you can reduce your carbon footprint. Um, one of the calculators that I love is on conservation.org's website. Um, I don't know, you guys might have one on your website as well, but um, but those are sort of global ways. And then people want to do something very specifically to help penguins in particular. Um, you know, my mission as a penguin lady is to raise funding and awareness, awareness and funding to protect penguins. And so 
I donate 20% of my proceeds from, from my books and from every um, appearance to conservation groups, penguin conservation groups. And there's a list, a very thorough list on my website, um, thepenguinlady.com, uh, of different penguin groups throughout the Southern Hemisphere that people can make donations to. Um, and that will go directly to penguin research, rescue, conservation. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Animal Voices today, Diane, and for sharing your experiences and insight with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. We've been speaking with penguin expert Diane DiNapoli. If you'd like to learn more about Diane's work or about how you can help endangered penguins, visit her website at thepenguinlady.com. As Diane explained in our feature interview, the top threats to penguins and indeed many species of animals are overfishing and climate change. Here's a segment from science and technology vlogger Sai with more information on these two issues and the most effective actions we can take to combat them. Fishless oceans by 2050. Can it really happen? So let's just get straight into it. So this stat has been around for quite a while, and this comes from a number of independent bodies. Um, I said that we're probably gonna face fishless oceans by the year 2050. Now what actually are these ocean dead zones that we're talking about? Now a few of these actually do occur naturally, but in most part it's down to us humans actually causing this. Um, and a lot of this is actually caused by fertilizer and animal waste runoff from these industries into the sea. Now all this kind of runoff increases algal blooms around the ocean which basically means that all this algae begins to form, it decays, it dies and thus taking a lot of oxygen from the sea which would otherwise be given to other sea life which then suffocates within the oceans itself. That also brings into things like the overfishing which has negative effects on that ecosystem as well. So all this together is actually creating kind of dead zones. Now you can see from maps that these major dead zones actually are around some of the major cities around the world. And that's no coincidence, and that's because of what we're literally dumping into the ocean. A hook in the mouth of a fish is the same as a hook of a mouth in the human in the way that we feel. When we go underwater for a long time, we can suffocate. When they come out of the water, they suffocate in exactly the same way. And we know that some of these fish actually live in social environments and they do actually have better memories than we first thought. You know, they do have a central nervous system, they do have brains, they do feel, they do function, and they certainly don't like being bashed over their head with bats and cords and things like that. So this is one of the main things that we're actually talking about is overfishing. Now, you say to yourself, well, this surely this shouldn't be a problem because there are quotas in that are in place by different governments um, to stop this kind of thing from happening. Now before I go on to speak about that, I would really like you just to take the time and check out a film called The Cove, um, which shows what happens to dolphins in parts of Japan. Uh, and it's a pretty gruesome watch, but I think it's one that everyone should watch. Um, now obviously dolphins are mammals and not fish, but it just shows you the extremity of even when quotas are in place, what people are actually still doing. So going back to the fish scenario now as well. So if a fisherman is told that he's only allowed to bring in 50,000 fish, he still goes out and he still gets 100,000 fish because obviously he can't cut off the nets at a certain point. What does happen is that once all those fish are on board, the majority of them actually die, and so that they don't get fined, they throw the fish back into the sea. So there's a lot of dead fish going back into the sea there and foremost. The main point is there is we have a mass amount of overfishing. So that's the first problem. The second problem is we're getting dead zones as a result of climate change and that goes down to pollution in the atmosphere, greenhouse gases, which then brings us back to the animal agricultural industry, which has got a two or threefold um, 
cause of this kind of fishless oceans. So first of all, what we do know is we know that the majority of greenhouse emissions actually comes from the animal agricultural industry. It's actually three times more than that of the whole of the transportation combined. Uh, and these are all facts, scientific, scientific facts. You can actually go and check all this stuff for yourself. There's a number of papers from independent bodies on this stuff as well. Um, so driving an electric car is all really nice and good, but cutting down your meat consumption and not eating meat at all is actually going to be more beneficial. On the other side of that as well, we have the toxic runoff that comes from these animals. And we're talking about the fecal matter, the amount that's actually produced aside from the methane gas, which rolls off into the seas and makes it toxic environments with the extra nutrients and things like that that are actually in those. Now also from the animal agriculture industry, we have a large amount of PCBs, which are polychlorinated biphenyls. And now these are actually coolant fluids which are used in the machinery to actually operate some of these farms or these agricultural developments uh, in terms of the animal industry. So all these things actually run off into the sea. These then in turn cause high levels of PCBs and mercury within fish. So when you are consuming fish, you are consuming elements, traces of mercury, which we know to be poisonous, and PCBs, which are also poisonous not just to us, but also to the fish. Now, we may think to ourselves, well, fish are healthy, we get all these kind of you know, fish fats which are really good for us, but all those kind of fats can be found as well in the plant kingdom. If you're looking at things like omega-3s and things like that, I mean, you can look at nuts, you can look at avocados, you can look at all those kind of things. If you get pregnant and you live in somewhere like the UK, they'll also warn you against eating certain types of predatory fish. And that's because the levels of mercury and PCBs are naturally higher in those fish. If we look at some of the other um, sea life out there, like some people call them scavengers of the sea, like shrimps and things like that, those are really, really high in cholesterol and aren't good for you at all. But they are bottom feeders, so they'll eat on anything. Uh, and the point is that, you know, in the past it's been quite a common thing where bodies have been retrieved from the ocean, they've been covered in shrimps and prawns nonetheless. Now our body produces its own type of cholesterol, which is the good cholesterol, and all other cholesterol comes from anything that derives from animals. So if you cut that out of your diet, you're going to be on your way to success. However, if you are a junk food vegan and you do eat a lot of saturated fats or trans fats, you do risk the levels of cholesterol raising in your body. Some of the other unknown facts that we talk about when we talk about extinction and things like that, we talk about the destruction of rainforests and how fast that actually is. And you can see how much is actually being just destroyed here. That's not even just half the problem. Now, a lot of us believe that the majority of our oxygen that we need to survive as humans actually comes from things like the plants and the rainforests. And in part, that is true. Um, but when you actually section it off, actually only 28% of our oxygen actually comes from the rainforests. Another 2% comes from other sources, and the remaining 70% comes from the oceans, comes from marine life. So slowly, as we overfish, as we destroy that ecosystem out there, we can actually see that we are killing ourselves in return if we want to look at it from a selfish angle. I mean, there's other things as well that are leading to extinction of sea life. I mean, you can look at the sonars, like the radars of military boats or other boats, which are kind of thrown off whales completely and they're getting beached. There's a case literally, I think, today or yesterday, where 150 whales were beached on the shore of Australia, which is more likely to do with sonar. Half of those are dead already. And you know, extinction is a real thing. I mean, we only have to look back to a couple of days ago where the last white male northern rhino died that's it there's no more of them there's two more females left 
Um, they think they may be able to do something with IVF, but the gene pool is so limited, it's probably gonna cause hereditary problems later down the line. So we as humans, through our poaching, through our killing, through our toxification, are literally destroying a lot of elements in this world. By the time my children grow up, there's a very hard case that the only time they're going to see fish is actually through a VR headset, like you know, something I did in one of these tech talks up here. By cutting out meat, we're helping the problem. By cutting out eating fish, we're helping the problem. And I just really wanted to re-emphasize to you that this prediction, based on scientific fact, and also the resources of the world and the growing populations and how we continue to consume animals within our diet, is only 32 years away. That's within my lifetime, providing I don't get knocked down by a bus or something else horrible happens. But that's 32 years away. So that's within our lifetimes. These are very important things that I think we need to sort of think about. A lot of things that are actually hidden from us and the reason why it's hidden from us is because it's profitable to kill animals. It's profitable to kill fish. And all this stuff is actually just a supply and demand issue. I think the key here is to actually just be mindful. So if you are still consuming animal products, whether it is um, sea life, whether it is land animals, whether it uh, is eggs or dairy, just be mindful the next time you look down at your plate and see that there was a living animal actually there. What toxins are in there, how it's affecting you, how it's affecting the environment, and what we're doing for the next generation that's actually coming up. Another problem that we've got to look at in terms of fish is that we know that with land animals, we're killing 56 billion a year. In terms of sea life, it's literally in the trillions. We cannot even count them. We have to measure them in tons. That's how much it is. And a lot of that is getting thrown back dead into the ocean. Some of those things are being skinned alive. Some of those are being battered over the head. They all face suffocation. Some of them have hooks through the mouth. It's just quite barbaric what we're actually doing when we don't need to. So in the environment that we live, like where I live in London in the UK now, I do not need to consume any type of animal or sea life. It's as simple as that. And in fact, it's not beneficial to the planet and it's not beneficial to my health. And if we are considering ourselves the most intelligent of the species with that information, with that data, why do we still continue to do so? I guess it's an addiction. You've been listening to Animal Voices here on 100.5 FM Vancouver Co-op Radio in Vancouver, BC, Canada on unceded Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh territories. Join us here next Friday, January 22nd at noon for more informative animal-friendly programming. We here at Animal Voices want to connect with you online. Visit our website, animalvoices.org, where you can stream past shows and download them as podcasts. You can also see our show blog there with detailed links and subscribe to us on iTunes. Stay in touch with us on Facebook and Instagram at Animal Voices Vancouver and on Twitter at Animal Voices YVR. Now we'll leave you with a song. This is Lyle Lovett with Penguins. Stay tuned for Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Thank you for listening to Animal Voices today. Please stay safe and healthy and remember to be kind to the animals.
heard about Megaphone magazine? It's an award-winning publication sold on the streets of Vancouver and Victoria by low-income and homeless vendors. When you buy Megaphone, you get entertaining and informative stories written by professional journalists, and you're also helping to empower people in poverty. Here's how it works. Vendors buy each magazine for 75 cents and sell them for $2, keeping the profits. With the money they earn, our vendors are able to buy healthy food, clothing, and other necessities. Plus, they forge valuable connections with their customers. People unable to access traditional employment can earn an income with flexibility and dignity and feel proud of their contributions to their communities. Don't miss out on this month's edition of Megaphone, chock full of voices and perspectives you won't find anywhere else. You can find a vendor on the streets of Vancouver or Victoria or buy online at megaphonemagazine.com. Did you know that Vancouver Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM, has over 90 different shows produced by over 350 community members? This wide range of programming produced by our diverse group of programmers ensures that we have a show you'll love. We have shows on feminism, spirituality, disability rights, politics, unions, and parenting. We play jazz, indie rock, reggae, blues, and folk. We broadcast in a dozen different languages and have more First Nations programs than any other radio station in Vancouver. Find your show on Vancouver Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. All different, all the time.
Looking for a show that promotes compassionate living with respect for all beings on Earth? Animal Voices is Vancouver's and Western Canada's only animal advocacy and vegan radio program. Bringing you all the animal and vegan-related news, events, interviews, lifestyle, and commentary you need to keep up to date on what's happening both locally and internationally. We at Animal Voices encourage the movement toward a world in which animals are treated with compassion and mercy. So please do tune in every Friday from noon to 1 p.m. on 100.5 FM and remember to be kind to the animals.